Detective Trap contains descriptions of violence and sexual content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. She watched the suspect for a long time, waiting for exactly the right moment. So much depended on the little things, like making the suspect believe you were not in a special hurry to talk to him, even if you had been able to think of little else for the last month. It was 9.30 a.m. on April 12, 2014, 29 days since Detective Julissa Trapp had been summoned to an Anaheim trash sorting plant where a young woman's mangled body had been found. Now, Trapp was standing in her sergeant's office at the Anaheim Police Department, cradling what might have been her hundredth cup of coffee since the case began, huddled with a team of other cops around the closed-circuit monitor with its bird's-eye view of the interview room down the hall. On the screen, she could see the suspect, Stephen Gordon, his face a pale smudge. He was a slight-looking man in his mid-forties. He was in a wheelchair because a surveillance car had knocked him off his bike the night before when he tried to flee. He was hunched forward slightly as the minutes passed, maybe just a little chilly. The thermostat had been turned down to the mid-60s in there, so that at the right moment, she could offer the illusion of friendship in the shape of a blanket. You tell your deepest, darkest secrets to your best friend. When I walk into a room, that's what I'm doing is, how can I become this person's friend? When I go into a room, I I treat that individual kind of how I feel when I'm going to go to confession. You learn very quickly, like, oh, this... This priest is very nice, and he kind of walks me through it, and he gives me some guidance and, you know, maybe gives me some good advice, as opposed to the priests that are kind of like, well, you shouldn't be doing that, right? Around the Anaheim Police Department, Trapp was considered a master interrogator. One thing that made her good at it was the art of what could only be described as weaponized empathy. Once in sex crimes, she was interrogating a man accused of molesting his eight-year-old niece, and he's like, you know, you, I, I think you understand me. I said, yes, I understand you. I said, you know, why don't you tell me everything that happened? And he takes a breath and he then starts caressing my hand, like my forearm, as he's talking. And, you know, everything inside me is just telling me instinctively to yank my hand back. But I can't because he's talking. The man gave her a confession, and when she excused herself to go outside, she could see him fixing his hair in the mirror, preparing for her return. For Stephen Gordon, she knew she'd have to figure out exactly the right persona. Her emerald green top was calculated to project approachability, but also strength. You're going to walk into that room, you're going to play a character. It's it's acting at its best, I think. And, uh, you know, sometimes I go in and I... I'm playing a motherly role. Sometimes I'm a sister. Sometimes I'm just, uh, you know, female that, you know, is willing to listen. She wouldn't know which mask to wear until she went in, and she'd have to build it and adjust it and maybe replace it in real time. She had decided that she would go in unarmed and would sit as close to Gordon as possible without the barrier of a desk in between their bodies. 
His hands were free, and he could lunge at her. It might be 15 or 20 seconds before help came. You know, am I going to get uh, punched in the face one day? Maybe. Um, but that's just, that's just part of it. Not any different than, you know, me letting a child molester rub my hand, I guess. That's what it takes. Around 10 a.m., after keeping Gordon waiting for 30 or 40 minutes, she announced, here goes nothing. She walked down the hallway to the interrogation room. She paused outside. She crossed herself and walked in. Hi, Stephen. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Detective Trap. Episode 4, The Interview. Other detectives who'd worked with Trapp through the case, like J.D. Duran, were watching to see what she would do. This is what she's been waiting to do. This is her part. This is her primary part, is to interview this guy. Kind of almost like a closer in a baseball game. She's in charge, and she's running all over the show. But clear mind, because what's coming up is, is all you. It's, all, it's on you now. The world is watching. Trapp didn't know what a serial killer was supposed to look like, but Stephen Gordon certainly didn't fit any Hollywood image of one. He looked like he could be your neighbor, the kind of guy you wouldn't give a second glance to. How are you? I'm a detective here with the police department. All right. How are you feeling? Sore, but I'm fine. Sore, but you're fine? I'm glad to hear that. They've been taking care of you okay? Sure. They offer you something to drink? Here? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't want anything. You don't want anything? She had glimpsed him once during the investigation as he wandered the Anaheim Industrial Park where he'd been living. They had exchanged a brief look. That was before he was a suspect, before she had his incriminating GPS tracks and cell phone texts in which he called the victims cats. The detective wondered whether they had crossed paths at some earlier point in their lives, maybe when he was a cook at Disneyland and Trapp went there all the time, maybe when he raked leaves at the Anaheim Cemetery and she would park her patrol car there to write reports. After reading him his Miranda rights, she opened with a standard gambit. She gave him a chance to blame his co-defendant, Frank Cano, hoping that he'd implicate himself in the process. Cano had refused to speak to her, a fact that Gordon did not know. She knew that Gordon and Cano were lovers, and that Gordon was the older and stronger of the two, but she did not know who was the driving force in the crimes. I, I honestly feel that you've kind of been given a dirty deal in this whole thing. Is this where the good cop, bad cop comes in? No, not at all. Okay, dirty. Not at all. How do you, why do you say that then? A dirty deal. Because I kind of think you were dragged along. That's why. Gordon seemed to know the nature of the game immediately. He was a longtime felon. He had done time in prisons across California. Trapp knew it would be over in a second if, like Cano, he lawyered up. Still, 
for reasons she didn't yet fully understand, he seemed willing to participate. She asked him about his family. He said his mom was dead and he didn't talk to his dad, that his dad ruined his life, but he was not going to talk about it. This was a brick wall. You were very upset last night. Should have just let him shoot me instead of running. You know that's not true. <laughs> I had the weapon in my hand. Steve, you know that wouldn't have been the right answer. I wouldn't have any more problems. Right? The case had drawn the attention of multiple agencies, local, state, and federal, including an FBI profiler. Hundreds of years of experience were crowded into her sergeant's office, watching trap work. But she was glad to be alone in the room. To her, one suspect, one detective was ideal. If you had two cops in the room, the suspect could fixate on the cop that seemed friendlier. Or the other cop might flash an expression that betrayed a trace of moral condemnation or use a word that sounded judgmental like murder, or jump in and say something just when the uncomfortable silence was closing in on the suspect like a vice. Trapp was looking for an opening, a fissure, and soon he gave her one. He wanted to talk about how much he hated his parole and probation officers. He had tried desperately to get his ankle monitor off, but they kept hassling him, lying about him, getting him violated on claims he had associated with Kano. Even as he raged about this, he admitted that he and Kano had cut their monitors off twice and fled the state, once to Alabama in hopes of seeing a NASCAR race, and once to Las Vegas, where they walked the strip and rode roller coasters. Gordon continued in this vein for a while, there in a room that was slightly chilly by design. At about the 15-minute point, she slipped this in. Are you cold? Do you want a blanket? Yeah, you don't mind. No, 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 no. He wrapped himself in the blanket and, as the interview progressed, seemed to retreat further and further into it. Gently and patiently, she elicited more details about his life. He'd been working at Boss Paint and Body for about three years. He said he had a daughter, and Trapp knew that in the early 2000s, when the girl was four, Gordon had kidnapped her along with his estranged wife, whom he had threatened with a taser. He was charged with raping his wife during the abduction, but he emphasized that a jury had acquitted him of the rape. He thought it was unfair that cops seemed to hold it against him anyway. Yeah, all you got was a kidnapping. Well, two counts. Because of your daughter. Right. How old is she now? She just turned 17. No contact there? No. She's your only daughter? Yep. That's got to be hard. I never did anything to hurt her. I know. I know you didn't. And that day, I think all you wanted was to make sure you had your family. Hey, I get it. Sounds to me like your family life was pretty jacked. And then here you have a family, and all you're trying to do is keep them together. Just didn't go by the right way. Trap saw an opportunity but it meant gambling a sliver of painful personal information. Now and then she would surrender personal details for use as interrogation room currency. A lot of cops are loath to do this. They don't want to give a bad guy any opening to taunt or menace. They don't wear wedding rings on the job or carry their kids' photos 
much less share their deepest griefs. Trapp was different, closer in philosophy to a novelist or actor for whom wounds are material. I, I get where you were coming from. I unfortunately can't have children, but I can only imagine what it would feel like. Building on this authentic detail, she added a fictional flourish. I tried to adopt, and I kid got kind of taken from me, and I, I, I didn't think my, I was going to make it. So it's, I can't even imagine what it felt like for you to be losing your daughter. As she worked to wear down his defenses, she told him he wasn't the kind of person who would have set out to hurt the women. I do not believe. And if you can look at me for a second, because I want you to know that I'm serious about what I'm about to say. I do not believe that you, you, personally, ever wanted to hurt those cats. I don't. And I need you to help me explain. I am serious. That's not you. You are a caring person. Stephen, if a mistake was made and you got pulled into this, I don't think that when this started, this was something that you envisioned ending like this. I want to be able to show that the person who I think you are that got sucked into something that never envisioned it getting into getting to where it did truly didn't envision getting to where it, it truly didn't t- intend to do any harm. But you and I need to get there together. What did you say your name was? Julie. Julie? Yeah. I think I thought you. Would you rather talk to somebody else? I don't want to talk to anybody. Gordon said that every attorney he'd ever had had screwed him over. He would represent himself on this case. Trapp thought, well, that's that. But now, Gordon said that he needed some air. Trapp and her partner, Bruce Lynn, wheeled him outside to the patio. So if I told you guys that I had an ulterior motive for bringing me outside, would you believe it? Would I, would I believe it? Um, I... I'll tell you guys everything you need to know as long as I get to death now. In case you didn't catch that, he says, I'll tell you guys everything you need to know as long as I get the death penalty. Of that, I'm going to be quiet. That's what it's going to be. As long as you get the death penalty? Yeah, that's what I want. Okay. I need something in writing, though. You need something in writing? Yeah, from a DA. From a DA. That they will prosecute you seeking the death penalty. That I get the death penalty. No trial. 
no, um, what do you call that? Appeals. Okay. None of that crap. There was zero chance that the state of California would grant Stephen Gordon's demand for a speedy death. It had been more than eight years since the state last executed a prisoner in 2006, and he had waited on death row for 24 years. But to tell Gordon this straight out might shut him down. And so, Detective Trapp played for time and sent for the prosecutor. It was Saturday morning, and the prosecutor assigned to the case, Assistant District Attorney Larry Yellen, was on a softball field elsewhere in Orange County. As they waited for him to show, Trapp tried to make small talk with Gordon. It turned out he was a fan of country music. So was she. My friends should make fun of me because obviously I grew up in Anaheim and I'm Mexican, so I guess I should be listening to, like, hip-hop and stuff. And now, I started listening to country when I was 16. Um, but that's when, like, Garth Brooks was big and um, Trace Atkins, Faith Hill. And then don't make fun of me, but I am the ultimate, ultimate fan What? A fan What's that? That's what they call Barry Manilow fans. Oh, I like Barry Manilow. I think you're a Fanilow. I write the songs. That make the whole world sing. I get made fun of because he didn't actually write that song. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime I say that, they're like, but he didn't write that song. I'm like, well, but he sang the shit out of it, so. The conversation meandered to cars. She said she wanted a 1976 Chevy pickup, but didn't know what she'd be getting into. A pose of cluelessness designed to flatter him. Being a chick, not knowing a lot about cars, um, I think I need one that's like already done, you know, because I don't know how to work on cars, and I think I'm just going to get screwed if I try to repair it little by little. You're not going to paint it pink, are you? No, no, no. I think red. Cops love red. She asked him if he had many friends besides Kano. Don't hang out with anybody, really. Can't go anywhere. Can't do anything, really. Gordon said federal probation forbade him from going to the park or to Disneyland, but in a rule he seemed to find absurd, he was allowed to go to the beach, where there were plenty of kids. He was fixated on the subject of suicide. He had known a child molester who had killed himself messily with a knife. If he was to do it, he said, he'd put a hose in the tailpipe and turn on some music. But if somebody wants to end their life, what does anybody care? Maybe that person is just that unhappy. At lunchtime, she had Mexican food brought in. Gordon said he had met Kano in 2010 at the parole office. Kano, who was five foot two, had asked if he could sit down and charge his ankle monitor from an electrical cord. I'm like, dude, this guy's a kid. Anyway. And he looks a lot younger than his age, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he can pass for a teenager, 15. yes. Yeah. He said Kano was naive. He thought everyone was his friend. Once at the parole office, Gordon had confronted a man who'd asked Kana what he'd done time for. What you doing asking questions like that? We're not in fucking jail no more. You don't be asking nobody. 
who the fuck are you? I says, what, you want to take it out back? I don't give crap, mm-hmm. you know? I don't like people that, you know, think they can punk somebody because they're smaller. So, I mean, basically, we've just been hanging out ever since. The anecdote sharpened Trapp's perception of their relationship at least a little. It told her that Gordon felt protective of the younger, smaller man. She was not going to volunteer that she knew they were lovers. She didn't know how he would react. Near the end of the fourth hour, Deputy District Attorney Larry Yellen entered the room. Gordon reiterated that he wanted the death penalty. He didn't want those stupid anti-capital punishment groups dragging out his appeals and convincing stupid judges to keep him alive. How am I going to have to wait? If you're going to tell me 10, 15 years, I'm not going to do that. And I know you're not in that position to answer that. Well, at least I don't think you are. No, I'm not. Yellen said he would have to leave to research the question. It might take a while, he said. It was a Saturday after all. But I don't want to sit around waiting. Back in the old days, they just shot your ass right then. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. He told her he knew what she was thinking, that he deserved it. She told him, She disagreed. I don't share your desire in wanting to end your life. That's what I was trying to prevent last night. And I know that that's what you're asking for. And it's your choice. You know, you and I both know it's always your choice. Yeah, but if you put me in a cell right now and I tried to do it, you guys would stop it. Yes or no? Yes. Why? What's the purpose? Alone again with Gordon, Trapp explained her philosophy about working homicides. Some of the victims were gangbangers, criminals, cold-blooded killers themselves. But to their families, they mattered. That mother hurts like any other mother. Mention of mothers seemed to make Gordon think about Kano, and he began to cry again. There's a kid downstairs that needs his mom. In the middle of the fifth hour, she decided the groundwork had been laid. It was time to press him about the dead and missing women. She laid out photographs in front of him. Kiana Jackson, Josephine Vargas, Martha Anaya, Jeray Estep. Gordon studied the photos. He rearranged them in the order of their disappearance. I don't know how or why it started. I picked up a lot of girls and I never did anything like this. I just paid them. He admitted that he picked up Estep and took her back to what he called his spot behind the auto body shop. They had sex, he said. And she sprayed me in the face with mace. And I don't know what happened after that. I I went crazy. So what happened next? Can you tell me how you heard her? Strangled with my hand. You strangled her? He said he picked up Kiana Jackson. They went back to his spot. They had sex. He strangled her. Can you tell me what happened to her? What do you mean? Let me ask you this. Did she go on a trash can? They all did. 
She sensed him watching her closely, every tremor on a face she tried hard to make a mask. More than once, he would stop his account to ask her what her expression meant. Nothing, she said. She pressed him to keep going. He said he strangled Josephine Vargas. He said he strangled Martha Anaya. Near the end of their seventh hour, Trap zeroed in on Frank Cano. She pretended that Cano had spoken to her. Here's, here's the thing, Steve. If you're going to tell me that he wasn't involved at all, I know that's not true. He didn't touch any of those girls in a way that I did. What do you mean by that? Kill him. I, 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 I can tell you this. Did you, Are you saying you strangled them all? I want you to be honest with me, okay? Because you've talked about these girls, and in each one of these instances, you've left Frank out. Okay. And, and I understand why you're doing it. I get it. Why? Because you're trying to protect him, is what I think. Gordon announced that he was not an idiot. He knew Kano's GPS tracks connected him to the missing women. And he seemed to grasp the implausibility of omitting him from his account altogether. His story began to shift, incorporating Kano in the incidents, but in ways designed to minimize the other man's culpability. Yes, he said, Frank Kano had come along two or three times. Sometimes he had sex with the women they picked up. Sometimes he just watched Gordon with them. So what would Frank do when you would strangle him? Well... He had no idea when the first time it was going to happen. So is he saying he's done it all? No. No. He's not saying that. But he is saying that you guys took turns. I can tell you he's lying. Why would he lie about something like that? Look at him and look at me. Do you think... If you're going to ask me if I think he's capable of strangling a girl... By himself? He, hey, I know he's small in stature, but he's still a guy. And he's, he's still muscular. Okay. And, I mean, do I think that Frank... Okay, I'm, I'm a little taller than him, and I'm trained. Do I think that if Frank had it set in his mind to strangle me... That he is capable of it? Sure. Not to you. You're trained. You okay. know moves. But what about a regular girl? A tiny girl? Because some of these girls were tiny. Okay. Right? You mean to tell me that you don't think Frank is strong enough to do that? Frank is just totally capable of doing that. For some reason, he's taking some of the blame, and I don't know why. Uh, you do. Next time you talk to him, if you talk to him again, you ask him. And if he says no to this question, he's lying to you on my mom's grave. Okay. Ask him, say, hey, did Steve ever tell you that if both of you guys got caught for doing something, he said to throw all the blame on him? He will tell you yes. If he's honest, he will tell you yes. Okay. Why would you tell him that? Because he's a kid and... He's got a young, he's young, he still has a chance. I don't, I don't anymore. 
The conversation was a quietly protracted struggle for advantage, played out in incremental maneuvers, and she knew the outcome would be shaped by intonations, micro-expressions, and her moment-to-moment ability to improvise skillfully. If she breathed too hard, he seemed to notice and clam up. He was sensitive to the slightest sign of judgment. I know that involving Frank is something difficult for you to talk about. And I understand why. I mean, you guys are really, really good friends. And especially for you, who doesn't really have a family, to me, I feel like maybe Frank is some of the only family you have. You mean had? I'm not going to see him again. Gordon said that unless he talked, they had nothing on Kano. And he wasn't going to talk. You don't have proof. Other than me opening my mouth or... You saying that Frank has talked to you, you had no evidence. I made sure of that. Or you would have been there a long time ago. She kept asking where he had dumped the bodies, and he kept dodging the question. Two of the women, Josephine Vargas and Martha Anaya, were Latina. One of them, Kiana Jackson, was a light-skinned black woman. Jure Estep had been white, and he referred to her as the white girl. Are you only concerned about this white girl because that's the only one you found? No. I'm concerned about all of them. They're never going to be found, are they? Oh, that's not true. Are they going to go digging? Am I going to go digging? No, not you personally. Oh, the hell I'm not. Yes, of course I'm going to go digging personally. Why? I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. And even if I just find bones, don't you think that that's worth it? She told him it would be easier to find the landfill the bodies were buried in if he told her exactly what trash can he'd thrown them in. This was equivalent to flipping over a card in a poker game. It was risky to reveal her keen interest in this information. It gave him power. Did they all go in the same trash container? Or just different containers in that area? Drop all the charges against Frank. I'll tell you what you want to know. I can't do that. That's not a decision I make. Gordon described a relationship with Kano that was not just protective, but violently possessive. Once he caught the smaller man copulating in a car with a female sex offender, dragged Kano out and doubled him over with a karate kick to the midsection. Gordon called it one of my good kicks. Once again, he denied that Kano had helped to murder Estep. I'm going to tell my friend. Okay. That's my story. Okay. He was not supposed to talk to you guys. I I understand that he wasn't, but he did. The lie seemed to have the desired effect of inflaming his uncertainty about his friend. Finally, Gordon said he would tell her everything she wanted to know, but he had a condition. In the middle of their ninth hour, Gordon told Trapp what he wanted in exchange for a full account of the crimes. It concerned his co-defendant, Frank Cano. And I want to see him. And you want to see him? I want to talk to him. You can be there. I'm not going to talk about what happened or anything like that. I just want to know if he's all right. Are you going to hurt him? 
You can cuff me if you want. Stephen Gordon promised he would tell everything if he could only see his friend. Detective Julissa Trapp told him she wasn't allowed to put them in the same room. Can I just go to the door and talk to him? I don't want to go. I don't want to go in the room. Just can I go to the door? Oh. I don't know. That might be possible. Yeah, I just... Yeah, I don't have to physically touch him. Touch him. I just want to say hi. She told him she would ask. And I know why you're... Why you refuse to tell me simple things. That is? Like which trash can? Why do I refuse to tell you that? I think it's because you think it's... It's, it's, I don't know, maybe leverage you have over me? No? Never even thought of that. Then why? Why not tell me which one? I guess my thing is, why not make it easier for me to dig? Here's my thing. In my mind, the only thing I'm thinking about is the fact that I deserve to call every mother who lost a daughter and at least bring what little is left to them home. I'm not even talking about the girls themselves. I'm thinking that every mother, because if something happened to you, Stephen, and your mother was alive, let me just tell you, I would work my ass off as much as I've worked in this case I'm the one that always has to go and tell the mom, I'm sorry your son or daughter is dead. And that's the hardest thing I ever have to do. And it doesn't matter that it's little freaking spooky who's been a shithead all his life. It doesn't matter because all the mothers cry the same. They all miss them. It wouldn't matter to your mother because look at your daughter. Could your daughter ever do anything that would cause you to stop loving her? Never, right? She can make mistake after mistake after mistake. Would you ever stop loving her? No. No, I know you wouldn't. I can tell. Right now, they're in a landfill. I'd like to find them. Let me see Frank. I'll talk to you. Two minutes. I'll ask. It was the middle of their tenth hour. Time for dinner. He asked for white rice with red sauce from Panda Express. They ate and talked about sports. Afterward, Trapp offered to fold up his blanket like a pillow. He napped. He woke and told her about the many jails and prisons he'd known. He was thinking again of Kano, of how he let Kano sleep inside his RV four days a week, and of how Kano just seemed to take him for granted. I tried so much to help that kid. And he just, like, took everything I did for granted. That's how I look at it, you know? He showed Trapp a scar and asked if she could guess its origin. A dog bite, she said. She could tell by the coloring. You're good. That's why I think you already know everything anyways. And you just want me to say it, but that's, that's all right. Well, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I, wanted to, um, I want some confirmation on some things. And uh, there is... <clears throat> There is one thing I want to know. And what's that? Oh, I think you know what I want to know. The trash can part? Yeah. Where I work? The revelation that he put all the bodies in the bin where he worked was an important breakthrough. But they were only partway there. 
In the squad room, she conferred with the FBI agent and other detectives. The key to breaking Gordon might be his relationship with his co-defendant. Something had struck her about her brief abortive conversation with Kano the day before. Kano had shown little to no curiosity about Gordon's plight. The feeling between the men seemed asymmetrical. Gordon loved Kano more than Kano loved Gordon. And maybe Gordon already sensed this. Maybe Trapp could use it. She had not understood the intensity of Gordon's feeling for the other man until she got into this room and heard him speak. It was not conveyed in the texts the men had exchanged. The FBI agent, Jeff Cuneo, had an idea. Why not tell Gordon that Kano refused to talk to him? Trapp thought that would devastate Gordon. She liked it. She thought it might work. She said, let's break his heart. Well, I got good news and bad news. Good news is my administration allowed it. Bad news is Frank doesn't want to see you. Why? I don't know. He didn't give an explanation. And my administration says if he doesn't want to see you, that it's inappropriate for me to take you down there. He's allowed to refuse visitors. Gordon looked stunned. He picked up his soda can and took a sip. <clears throat> he wouldn't refuse. I'm going to tell you that right now. Well, he did. He wouldn't refuse. Well, he also said he wouldn't talk, and he did. I'm sorry. It's possible the most important part of the interview, the hinge point, was the long silence that followed. Gordon wrapped his gray blanket tight around his body and the lower part of his face like a man in a blizzard and seemed to sink deeper and deeper into it. He stared into empty space as if crestfallen, weighing his options. He had just taken the blame for a series of murders for a man he loved who in turn didn't even want to see him. The silence stretched for more than a minute and Trapp knew better than to surrender to the impulse to fill it. Finally, Gordon cleared his throat, and as their 11th hour turned into the 12th, his love for Kano seemed to curdle before her eyes into rage and hate. And when he began to speak again, she knew the room was finally hers. Why don't you tell me how you think about that? Now in Gordon's account... He and Kano were collaborating partners in a series of abductions, rapes, murders, and cleanup jobs that grew more methodical and sophisticated as they progressed. They would cruise Anaheim and Santa Ana in search of sex from prostitutes. They knew women would be reluctant to get into a car if they saw two men inside, so one man would drive while the other hid in the back seat. And I told Frank, lean the seat back so she doesn't see you. Oh, Frank, to get all the way in the back. She got my car. After she smoked her cigarette. And I knew it. I knew it had to be done. They would overpower the women and drive them back to the lot behind Boss Paint and Body, a place so dark and isolated no one would intrude. 
In Gordon's forerunner truck or RV, they would take turns raping the women and then, to curb their victims' terror, hold out the false promise that they'd be released. All the women cried. They all begged to go home. Some spoke of their kids. So none of these girls came to the back of Boss Pink willingly? No. He said Kano would strangle women while Gordon, at Kano's command, punched them repeatedly in the stomach to hasten their asphyxiation. Kano would strip the bodies and clip the nails and throw the bodies away. They picked certain nights of the week to do their work, the eve of trash pickups. Well, if the trash came on Monday, it would be Sunday. If the trash came on Wednesday, it would be Tuesday night. Gordon said he was troubled by Estep's death. He said he had felt something for her. They hadn't put her in a trash bag as they had some of the others, which he believed led to her discovery. And this one has bothered me since the day one. And when Friday afternoon or morning, I looked up west from where I was working and I could see a helicopter floating up there and I'm like, they found that one, I know they did. I know they did. And the next morning we got the paper they get the paper seven days a week. And there's her picture. Gordon looked wrung out and defeated. He stared into the corner of the tiny room. Just take me back outside so I can make a run for you, Mr. Juby. I can't do that. Thank you for telling me what trash can you throw them in. I hope you find them. I hope you find them, he said. As their twelfth hour ended and the thirteenth began, she excused herself and stepped outside. There was more to be done. The forensics team would need a few minutes with Gordon. But the interview was effectively over, and she'd won. She had not just Gordon's confession of his involvement, but an account of his partner's role. Many of the cops who were on hand for the start of the marathon interrogation were still here, eager to congratulate her. She brushed past them and headed to the bathroom. For half a day, she had fought against emotion, bottled up every feeling that might threaten to flicker across her face. But now she was staring at herself in the mirror, her makeup gruesome under the sudden flood of tears. She was heading back into the interrogation room when the FBI agent stopped her. Don't let him see you like that, he said. Don't give him a victory. Take a few minutes. When she returned, her face clear, she conveyed no impression of the emotional toll the day had taken on her. You're good. I'm the shit, Stephen. The interview had lasted 13 and a half hours. It was now late into the night. The fireworks in the sky above Disney had boomed and faded. The forensic team entered to take Gordon's fingerprints and hair samples and dental impressions and DNA. The media had learned of the arrests, and soon there would be a press conference. And Trapp knew the question would come up. How was it possible that two sex offenders with ankle monitors under 24-7 electronic supervision could have committed a series of murders? What went wrong? But right now, Trapp was thinking about how to recover the bodies of the missing women. It would be a logistical nightmare. But at least she knew enough to get started. And she was thinking about something else Gordon had mentioned, 
something she had tried hard not to react to. You're missing one, he had said. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part four of five of Detective Trap. If you're the victim of sexual exploitation or want to help someone who is, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888. Detective Trap was written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford. Associate producer is Greta Weber. Story editor is Liza Veal. Original music by Fernando Arruda. Sound design by Marcelino Villapando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Special thanks to Asil Kibbe, Julia Turner, and Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.